0: The mission of the, the cooperative as a whole is to really enable a just transition to renewable energy that allows everyone to own and be involved in shaping energy future and really to, to tap into the the broader benefits that come from the transition to renewable energy beyond just the clean and green electricity.
1: What if the panels for a community solar project could be on the home rooftop of one of its members? Subin Devar is the director of the Community Renewable Energy Program at the Sustainable Economies Law Center in Oakland, California. His organization provides the legal framework for community ownership and, along with several partners, they recently launched the People Power Solar Co-op, a community solar project using a residential rooftop. We discuss how this model breaks the barriers to community renewable energy and how it has the potential to scale up. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Subin, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. So I am super excited about this. I'm a big fan of Sustainable Economies Law Center, especially Janelle's illustrations that she puts together (laughs) in your newsletter. But I really want to talk to you about this project because it really has a novel approach to community renewable energy. So as I was saying in the intro, most community solar is off-site. So when you subscribe to a project to share some of the energy from that community solar project, it might be on a local church or it might actually be out in a field of a farmer that's not being used several miles away. But this People Power Solar Co-op, put solar on an individual's rooftop in an urban area so could you describe this project for people like what was involved in it where is the solar and who are the people who are participating in it
0: Yeah just to give some context as well too and that we went this approach only because of challenges to having a, a community solar garden like you might think of in other parts of the country and challenges to that in California so that's just some some background, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this first project. So the, the People Power Solar Cooperative aimed to get around the barriers for communities to own and control renewable energy assets in California. The policies make it difficult to have an economically viable shared solar garden in California. So what we did was launch a process of reaching out to community groups, community members who are interested in more community ownership and control of energy, and started a process of looking for potential sites for a, a net metering-based project that could then be owned by the larger community. So what we ended up finding was a well-known advocate in the labor justice and environmental and fights against fossil fuel movements in California, someone named Laura Jofu, who was known in the community and most recently helping to fight a coal terminal from coming to Oakland. And she was interested in offering up her roof to the community for the community to own solar panels on her roof. And so her house, actually a duplex, is the site of the first project. And the project itself was built, these solar panels were built and constructed by raising money through community memberships in the cooperative. And so we had about fifty community members by membership shares of People Power Solar Cooperative, and through those membership shares, raised the funds necessary to, to build that first project.
1: So, I just have to ask one question in terms of the structure. So, I, when I first read about this project being developed, loved to share it out on social media, pass it around. I also wrote back and said, hey, can I subscribe as someone who lives in Minnesota but thinks this model is awesome? And I was told no. Unfortunately, it was only open to residents of California. So I know this probably gets in the weeds a little bit, but was hoping you could just talk about why couldn't somebody from somewhere else participate? Noting, of course, that it's exciting that we're talking about it being (laughs) community-based and maybe you didn't want people from Minnesota to be sort of be jumping into it, carpet bagging or something from a long way away?
0: Well, it's, it's a good question. And, and it really, it really hits the two main issues that really are at play with trying to build a community solar project, wherever in any state, you're um, one of the two big legal or policy issues that you're going to navigate are, what are the energy regulations for building a, a solar project? And then what are the financial regulations and securities regulations that you need to be aware of? And, and so one of the, the challenges for community ownership of projects is navigating securities regulations. And so what the project that we worked on, how it is structured to both work in the regulatory environment. So that first thing that I mentioned is there's no good shared solar policy. And so it's, you know, built like a net energy meeting policy. So that's how we navigate that first issue. Um, But then the reason why it's limited to California residents is that California has certain policies um, and and various states have uh, policies like this that apply just to cooperatives. And so in California, there's a form of entity called a Cooperative Corporation. And so membership shares in a cooperative are exempt from the more onerous California state regulations. Um, And then to navigate federal regulations, it's also possible to ensure that you're your project is limited to so within one state, and that's one way to qualify for a interstate uh, exemption for federal securities. And so that's that's sort of the short story of, of, of why it's structured that way.
1: And for people who want a deeper dive on the security stuff, I'm just going to offer that we did, ILSR published a 2016 report called Beyond Sharing that looked at some of these issues. If you want kind of more of the 101 on what we're talking about with security stuff, but Without having to go deeper into that here, I do want to ask about the net metering arrangement, because what's interesting about this issue around compensation for community renewable energy and the offsite projects has been this long running debate about whether or not people could treat this as investment income or if it's some kind of income that's taxable or not, and sort of the compromise most community renewable energy projects make is saying to avoid any kind of issues around taxable income or, or things like that. They simply say, well, we'll get credits on the bill and bill credits have been agreed upon by the IRS to not count as income. But in this case, you're not metering it to a single customer. So how do you share the financial benefits of this with the co-op members?
0: Yeah. So that, that's a great question. And just to take a step back to why even trying to think about who benefits is really important, the mission of the the cooperative as a whole is to really enable a just transition to renewable energy that allows everyone to own and be involved in shaping energy future and really to to tap into the, the broader benefits that come from the transition to renewable energy beyond just the clean and green electricity. So in this project, how we navigated expanding the benefits that this transition has. So what are the benefits of this one project? That's through the community having this ability to get dividends from their membership share in the project at the same time as the the homeowner has a bill savings directly on their bill. And so the homeowner sees a savings now given the solar system that they have on their roof, but all the community members that own the cooperative Also, will get dividends on the the membership shares, the investment that they've made into the cooperative. And so that's one way. But that's only one in a set of benefits that the community has really come together to see. And so another way that we've kind of described the cooperative is that it's a a movement cooperative. And one of the gaps we saw was not just there there was these policy barriers, but there was really a barrier for folks to get involved in something. To really feel like they were empowered and able to be agents of change in the future that they wanted to see. And so being at the, at the table to run this organization because it's democratically owned and run by all of the member owners of the cooperative, that really empowers the community to have the added benefit of being able to steer what projects they want to develop and to design those projects uh, in such a way that navigates where they want benefits to go, what other social, economic, health, or other wealth benefits these projects could have. So it really, really empowers more than just, you know, subscribing to power and, and getting some bill savings.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. It really fits with the way that ILSR and, of course, Selk talk about energy democracy. I love that you're talking about this kind of co-op membership as being more than just a financial arrangement. There's a, in Minnesota as well, and, and we've interviewed Timothy Den Thomas from Cooperative Energy Futures, which has had a similar approach in terms of their discussion of the meaning of, of membership rather than it just being a financial arrangement. And we did an interview with him back a while ago on local energy rules. So one other question I had, I, of course... I'm a stickler for trying to figure out all of the nitty gritty details when these kinds of projects happen. (laughs) I was curious. So you, you mentioned that, you know, all the co-op members came together to raise the money for the project to be built. Did it require any kind of subsidies? And and for example, was it able to access the federal tax credit, which has been so important to so many solar energy projects?
0: This project did not utilize the federal Solar investment tax credit. Part of the ways that we kept the cost low was to partner with a nonprofit installer called Sunwork that is able to offer much more competitive pricing for mission-aligned solar installations. And so that brought the cost down. And the, relatively compared to what other projects we might build in the future, you know, this is a relatively small project. It was about a seven kilowatt capacity system the the house is actually a duplex and so it's a little bit larger than you know a single residential users a system that would be sized for that but no no other incentives or uh, credits were used
1: one of my big questions here is that and i reflect on this being in california you know california has been a state that has really seen a remarkable growth in the rooftop solar market. You know, there was some very deliberate state policy to guide that, the a Million Solar Roofs, the California Solar Initiative. You know, we've got a fancy time-lapse graphic for people who are interested in kind of seeing the growth of that rooftop solar over the past decade. Can this kind of project scale up like that, like individual rooftop solar has? Do you see this as something that's easily replicable where you could get either these co-op members or additional co-ops created to do more projects in California and to really broaden the number of people and and community members that could participate in community and renewable energy?
0: We do. And part of that is because the cooperative is not limited to building projects just in this one way. What it's really structured as is creating the umbrella and framework for communities to get involved and and then be able to tap into an array of different energy regulations or programs that come online in California, and to navigate each of those. And so it really just creates this community-based, movement-driven entity that can be involved in building those different projects. And so those could look like a number of small residential systems, but what we're what we're also aiming to do is to be able to, in the long term, serve the member owners of this cooperative itself. And so as California adopts programs that make it easier to build solar on multifamily affordable housing, for example. Now, that's coming online. And as it's exploring maybe improving community solar laws in the state, which are sort of in flux, its current policy um, isn't ideal for really promoting community solar projects, but they're experimenting with potentially better models that's targeting low-income communities and communities that have higher pollution burdens. So this is a program that's called the Community Solar Green Tariff, and that might come in line. So there are these avenues for programs that could involve larger installations. So that could mean solar projects on community buildings. It could mean in the future, ground mount larger systems. And the the other side of it, while well, in addition to this being a vehicle for community capital, it's also a vehicle for mission-aligned investments, patient capital from For example, foundations that are looking to divest their funds from fossil fuel entities, how do they then move that into investments in really community based and equitable models for renewable energy? Um, And so this could be a model that taps into that and that would really enable more scaling and replicability.
1: Oh, that's cool. I'm curious in terms of if, you know, let's just say a foundation came to you and said, hey, we've got $10 million. In our endowment that we want to invest, you know, we can do it at a relatively low rate of return because this is aligned to our mission where, you know, how we grant our money. How does that work? How does that mix in with the member dollars? Like, what does that enable you to do differently? And how would those resources be invested differently from member dollars? Or would it be very similar Would it? Would it just be sort of like the foundation is another co-op member who just happens to come to the table with a much larger investment?
0: So that's a good question. Without going into it in too much depth, I because mean, it, it it definitely takes a lot more exploring, and it's a pathway that we'll look into more as we scale. Um, but the the short answer is that it's not the it wouldn't be the exact same structure as uh, that funding would most likely come in as a separate financing vehicle, where there were terms to ensure that it, it that it was non-extractive, that that it was patient capital, um, either through some form of loan or, or debt arrangement or some, or some other arrangement. But it, it wouldn't involve that entity then having a, a stake in, in driving the direction of the cooperative in the way that the community members do.
1: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I ask if this solar cooperative model can work in states outside California, how folks can learn more about this project, and what developments in energy democracy keep Subin hopeful in a warming world. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. We talked at the beginning about poor John Farrell who can't invest in this co-op because he lives in <laughs> Minnesota and so are there any plans by the Sustainable Economies Law Center or the People Power Solar Co-op to model this in other states anytime soon or is there and even if you are not planning to do that are there any barriers to this being done in other states setting up this kind of co-op framework as you mentioned to do community renewable energy
0: Well that's a great question. We we definitely approach this. We being you know, I'm working both at the Sustainable Economies Law Center and then helping the law center is incubating the People Power Solar Cooperative, um, and I'm a member on of the board. But the law center's interest is to really create a model that that could be shared and learned from in other states. And so we're we're actually being very deliberate about creating the documents in a very user friendly way. They are geared to apply specifically. To California for now, and based on an analysis of the policy and legal framework, you know, and I couldn't say on this call what what the the legal framework is in, in various states and exactly how that would be navigated. But what we're what we're planning to do is to um, provide these resources as a model for for other states, and and to work in partnership with others that are considering this. And so, uh, since we've started to do this process, people have reached out to the Law Center wanting to learn more about this model. And, you know, and we can be a helpful resource for legal information to kind of explore what are the, the laws that are at play in, in your state. And, and there are similar structures, even though the laws are different, there's similar sort of issues that one will have to navigate. Like I mentioned, those two main areas of navigating what the regulations are and what the securities laws are. And so I think with the combination of creating these documents um, and with those partnerships with folks, um, we're really open and hopeful that others will reach out to us and look at the, the materials that we have. Actually, on our website, we've posted the cartoon version of our bylaws, which I think folks will find very useful. So there are peoplepowersolar.org slash documents, and you can see the, the bylaws, which don't look like your typical legalese, uh, but it is a formal governing document, but it's easier to follow.
1: That's great. And I love that you're doing that at Format, not just because I'm assuming that Janelle had a hand in doing the cartoons, which I've always enjoyed, but because it is one of those key issues of accessibility, of course, that the fact that you need legal expertise to navigate this is a significant barrier because being a lawyer or being able to retain a lawyer can be very challenging. And I think about, for example, one of the, some of the early Community solar projects that were created before there were laws in states, sort of smoothing the way for project development, as there are in like Minnesota or Maryland. I'm thinking of the University Park Solar Project in Maryland, where they Mm. had a lawyer that was part of their little cadre of folks interested in this who gave their time pro bono, or the Monadnock Co op project in New Hampshire, where again, they were able to get free legal advice. So I think this is really great that you are trying to create an accessible model for people because finding that legal help to get the project structure set up is is really complicated. So you already preempted my next question which is where people can learn more. So I'm glad. Let's just have you give that again. Uh, and then I have just one last question for you.
0: Sure. Yes, I'll point out about the People Power website. It's peoplepowersolar.org. And you can go there. You can also more learn more about the Sustainable Economies Law Center's energy program at theself.org, so the word the-s-e-l-c dot O-R-G slash energy. And, and I want to make a point also related to what you raised, which I think is, is great in terms of the accessibility of information. One of the foundational commitments that are in our bylaws is a commitment to just transition that focuses on two key values a commitment to democracy and self-determination, as well as centering frontline communities. And so creating a structure and creating documents and a model that really allows people to take action themselves, to self-organize, that really allows more access to marginalized communities is core and important to this model. And I feel very strongly that it's important to expanding equitable approaches to renewable energy in every state.
1: So Sugan, I just want to say thanks again for detailing this project. I want to leave people with hopefully a good answer to this question, which is, is there something that you have read about in the news recently, been following in the news recently about energy democracy, whether it's a particular kind of project or a movement you've heard about or legislation, something out there that is keeping you hopeful about our ability to approach climate with equity and justice in our minds?
0: That's a great question. I, you know, it may not sound that new or novel, but if, if folks aren't aware of how much of a youth driven effort is behind the organization, the sunrise movement, that is something that has really given me a lot of hope over the last several months. So just to, to give you a little summary of, of what's going on there, the, group, Sunrise Movement, that really was behind a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office back in November that got the Green New Deal on the table. That's a group of, of young folks who, for the last several years, had been advocating, many of them, for divestment at the universities that they were a part of. And it's been incredibly inspiring to me to see their energy. I went to a the final event of their Green New Deal tour, their advocacy around making sure that presidential candidate candidates are talking about climate change and debate, and their their ability to really inspire young people and folks all across the country to really get involved in the movement as well. Not just that energy, but combined with that, with the fact that they're a generation that really looks at energy from an intersectional lens. So they haven't modeled out, let's, let's address energy in, in such a way that's just about, decarbonizing as fast as we can rather instead they're considering this from a perspective of well there's an interplay of different social economic issues that play in terms of the harms that folks have seen from the current energy economy and the benefits that they might see in the future and then they're approaching it that way so i'd say that's really what has been giving me hope to see that passion and energy
1: Well, Subin, thank you again for sharing that moment of inspiration and also for your work inspiring others by helping to create this framework for cooperatively owned community solar. Thank you very much for having me. This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Subin Devar, director of the Community Renewable Energy Program at the Sustainable Economies Law Center in Oakland, California, about their new People Power Solar Cooperative. For more on busting the barriers to community renewable energy, check out ILSR's 2016 report titled Beyond Sharing. You can also hear another podcast about a community solar cooperative in episode 57 with Timothy Denherter-Thomas of Cooperative Energy Futures in Minneapolis. While you're at our website reviewing these other resources, you can also find more than 90 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.